Um, so I just want to kind of start with some of the basics of MI, motivational interviewing. One of the biggest things we want to get away from that we have found actually tend to uh, yield guilt and shame, and that's important that we recognize that, you know, some different models really kind of harp on, on that a little bit with negative labels. And we know um, through research that guilt and shame are two primary motivating um, emotions that lead to relapse. Um, and lead to attempts to self-medicate um, with substances. So, MI's goals, we want to decrease the negative labels. Um, I don't refer to my clients as addicts. I refer to them, you know, um, they are struggling with <coughs> alcohol addiction, meth addiction. Um, we, you know, it, it kind of takes away from that because People are more than an addict. And the way I look at, you know, the way I rationalize that is, you know, another pet peeve of mine, you know, when I've worked in hospital settings and community mental health settings, oh, you know, the schizophrenic or the bipolar always bother me. We're taking away people's individuality and we're saying this is this is what who and what you are. Um, I understand that, you know, there's different um, preferences to that um, in, in different models, but for the goals of motivation, you really want to get away from that. Um, some others, dysfunctional, oh, they have a dysfunctional family, you know, um, they have a disease, they're powerless, they made bad choices. What are some other negative labels or beliefs attached to addiction? If we look at the historical how treatment or group treatment and, and different things started, it was very heavily based in morality. You just have poor morals and that's how you got here. Um, so all of you, from what I hear, have worked in the addiction field. What are some other negative labels or beliefs attached to addiction? I would, I would probably say Choices, you can do this. You do have the power to change. Um, change can happen. It's your decision. Um, some people prefer to use the word illness versus disease, just because it, you know, addiction is something that people can overcome and live healthy, happy lives. Um, what are some other positive labels? Great. Um, I couldn't have said that better. Thank you. 
But yeah, absolutely. You know, we want to get away from the idea that you're helpless and you want to instill hope and then wellness. So, um, so moving on. So definitely with motiv motivational interviewing, we need to get away from, you know, we're not there to give advice. We're not there to tell them what to do. We want to emphasize personal choice and control. Long-lasting change is correlated with intrinsic motivation. So if the person is doing this out of their own volition and their own motivation, we're <clears throat> going to have better results, fewer relapses. Um, it's so important to try to invoke as much of that as possible. <clears throat> Create a free and friendly space to explore difficult issues really work on building rapport in a and try to you know in a non-judgmental manner um, and we're going to just kind of practice um, open-ended questions <clears throat> and responses that help to elicit um, change from <clears throat> our clients who we're working with and, and assisting by emphasizing personal choice and control there is decreased resistance and this really helps the individual to be engaged in their recovery. So, you know, a lot of times I hear from clients that come to see me is, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm being preached at. I don't want advice. I just, I just want to come in here and start and just have somebody listen to me. And so that's what we do. We focus on building rapport. Under, I try to understand the client's point of view and where they're coming from. And then that helps me formulate Okay, here's our next step. So roadblocks to listening, giving advice. A lot of times when someone comes to you, and especially if they're in that pre-contemplation stage of making change, they're just going to stop hearing you if you're giving advice or making suggestions. That's something I have to overcome all the time and recognize I'm doing this again is providing solutions. I'm a social worker. I want to help you. Here are some things that will help you. Um, this is, you know, if you would do this, this would be very helpful. You have to get away from that. Um, persuading with logic, arguing, lecturing, moralizing, um, even disagreeing. You know, when a client tells you how they feel or perceive something about their addiction, who are we to say you shouldn't feel that way or the way you feel is incorrect or how you perceive things? Um, definitely don't want to be judgy. Um, you know, shame and guilt, as I said before, those are really two heavy emotions that most of the time people are already struggling with and we don't need to add to that um so reassuring sympathizing or consoling they aren't there for our sympathy um but they are there for our empathy uh be careful about how you question and probe and we'll kind of talk about some some different ways you really want to try to stay away from why statements why do you do this or that? Um, because why, using why incites blame. And so um, a lot of times once someone feels that way or hears that, they just kind of stop listening and being in tune with, with the, um, the interaction. Uh, 
withdrawal, distracting, or humoring. We, we want to be mindful of that. Um, and, and it's important to recognize, am I comfortable with someone, you know, expressing deep emotion to me or coming to me and crying as they're talking about things? Because these are things that people really need to, to be able to do in a safe place. And so if you're used to distracting or humoring, um, I mean, I, you know, I see how that could be an attempt to help someone cope and get through something, but it's also going to prevent them, you know, from working on their issues. They've been distracting themselves using various substances. So challenges. Your clients are going to come to you during some of the lowest points in your life. Recognizing strengths can be difficult for both you and your client in times of despair. So we really want to focus on validating feelings and empathize <coughs> and help them to see their strengths. And we'll talk more about some examples with that. Um, so just a kind of a fun activity, but it also demonstrates just how challenging sometimes it can be to assist a client with recognizing strengths. And hopefully, uh, you know, Chris tells me that it's, it's a fun, interesting group, so I really am, am hoping for some great feedback on these. Um, so I'm gonna show you some pictures, and they're challenging to find strengths. We're, we're gonna start off with one that's you know, not, not so bad and kind of escalated. So in the following picture, what are strengths that you see? Tired. Efficient. Space. I heard that. There were some other comments I didn't hear. Someone close to the mic could repeat them. No, just talk loud. So when you answer, if you could raise your hand first so I can point this to you and then speak as loud as you can. That'd be, that'd be great. Very helpful. Thank you. Spatial reasoning. Oh, yeah. That's the first time I've heard that one. I like it. Okay, 
there's nothing wrong with that situation. circumstances where like I said you know people are coming to you in their lowest points how can we how can we get them thinking on a different track um, how about this one seems to he's probably not calm but he appears calm he's not you know having any sudden movements at least okay so this guy is always going to have the best story at any party <laughs> <laughs> yes that is a new one and I like it I'm going to write that maybe I don't think it's yeah, maybe <laughs> Uh, to and, and I put a little bit of humor in it to recognize 
Wow, in these challenging settings, it sure can be difficult to try to identify some positives or some strengths. So, you know, again, motivational interviewing is a strategy that assists to mobilize a person's own motivation and, and their resources for change. We may have all kinds of ideas for, for resources, but they're going to do better if we can incorporate things that already exist in their life. The focus is on building up rather than tearing down. Um, the client is going to define the desired change, not us. Um, when I teach students to do treatment plans, I tell them that needs to be a team effort. You know, I can tell when it's just jargon and you've written this treatment plan versus using the client's own language for treatment plans because they need to know what they're working for. Um, it also lowers resistance of the client you know, and some resistance is therapeutic, but too much is just going to create barriers and also your client may not follow through with their treatment. Um, so to start, we want to work on resolving the ambivalence. So the client is going to be pulled in all kinds of directions. I mean, we would just be lying to ourselves and to our client if we didn't first acknowledge that they are getting something out of getting and using, right? Whether it be self-medicating or maybe they just, they like the high, it's a good escape. And so I think we need to acknowledge that, but also have awareness that they're damaging their health and, and how to get them there. And MI is gonna help them put their goals, values, and behaviors in the one positive direction. Um, so we wanna use strength-based interventions uh, used to address negative thoughts and beliefs. Uh, one of the most common triggers for relapse is related to depression. And as I said, those, those underlying feelings of guilt and shame. Um, and then it leads to like distorted, or I, mean, I just call it stinking thinking. You know, who cares? I might as well go back to what I was doing before. Um, nobody cares. Um, so, you know, like I said, we want to avoid shame and guilt because this just leads to poor compliance with treatment. So, to start off, some good questions might be, and you'll notice these are all open-ended questions. So, they can't just say yes or no to them. We really want to get them talking as much as possible, especially when we first start um, interviewing them or working with them. So. You know, when people say good things about you, what are they most likely to say? And if, you know, if they, they may go off and, and say, you know, more bad things, but you just redirect them. Okay, but what are some good things? Um, what things have you done in your life that have given you real pride? You know, this is going to help learn more about them, about their history and, and things that they have done. And, um, it'll give you something to work with as far as, you know, direction of where this client could go. And given all the challenges you've had to deal with, how have you managed to get through it all? You know, with substance abuse, co-occurring disorders are so high. A lot of people who struggle with substance abuse 
um, have high rates of, of some sort of traumatic event. So we see a lot of PTSD, a lot of depression, anxiety is very high, highly associated, um, as well as bipolar disorder. And so, I mean, these are a lot of challenges that they're going through. And, and somehow they have gotten through it. So we need to help them recognize their, their resiliencies. And also that helps us too, right? Because we understand, well, this worked for them. Perhaps this could work again for them to help them. So common cognitive distortions. We want to recognize these because these are really common with substance abuse. We want to work on assisting to connect thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and address those automatic negative thoughts, beliefs, and cognitive distortions. So some of the common ones that all or nothing thing. Unless I resist using, I'm, I'm a complete failure. I hear this a lot with relapse. I always tell my clients, it's not certain, but it is possible and somewhat common that you may have a relapse or be triggered to have a relapse. One thing I want you to do is keep coming back to treatment. We, and I tell them there's nothing that we can't work on. You know, we want to take that, that barrier of shame and guilt away so that they feel comfortable enough to come back. Overgeneralization, you know, well, I didn't get hired after, you know, these couple of interviews, I'm never going to get hired anywhere. Um, so, you know, everything's bad, right? Magnifying and minimizing. Um, they're going to really magnify all of the negatives in their life, all the mistakes they've made. Um, and then, you know, this leads to rationalization and use. You know, well, I need a release. It's just one time. What's the big deal? Minimizing that use or, you know, the relapse. Um, assumptions are mind reading that leads to false conclusions. A lot of times, um, you know, for those you know, people who might be in the audience who are also in recovery as myself, um, you know, used to think, you know, I was the life of the party when actually I wasn't. I was misreading people. And, you know, um, we also get caught up in a lot of superficial relationships too. So need to really work on more rational thoughts is, is really important. So here's some examples. Um, my urges are unbearable. I have, you know, I can't overcome these. Um, and this, you can hear this a lot in the beginning of treatment, as I'm sure all of you have experienced, you know, like when someone first comes in, the thought of sobriety and, and living without these substances or substance that they have de depended on, um, it just seems so unrealistic. And so we want to help them get to a more realistic point of view and, and to reframe it. So yes, urges are uncomfortable, but you can bear them. If you keep telling yourself that you can't bear them, you're setting yourself up to use. Urges won't kill you or make you go crazy. They'll just make you uncomfortable. How can you learn to coexist with the uncomfortable? Um, another unrealistic belief uh, my urges only stop when I give in. This is true. Um, 
However, what happens the next time and the next time? And so, um, or just may last only seconds to minutes. That's important. You know, I always tell these are temporary. You know, relapsing could lead to very long-term um, issues. Um, and this just really, it, it, it explains, if you're explaining to the client um, how your nervous system works, and it will, it will eventually stop noticing the skin yarn. You know, if, if you didn't, you couldn't wear clothing because it would be too uncomfortable. If you fast, you know hunger eventually fades away. Um, so providing them some real life examples can help. And then when they're doing those unrealistic thoughts, ask them, well, what's a more realistic or reasonable thought? I kind of stopped saying uh, what is more of a rational thought because people that struggle with addiction are sometimes they will rationalize their views. So I stopped using those words because they seem to be trigger words. So I use realistic and reasonable. So we're going to do like some practice work. I hope everybody you know is willing to try this because I think it will help you relate better with your clients and feel free to use the handouts um, that were provided for this particular practice session because I will email anybody any of these handouts if they feel like this is something that they can work with. So you know this is our um, model of change. You know, pre-contemplation, no intention of changing behavior, but there's some thoughts there. Um, contemplation, they're aware that the problem exists, but no commitment to action quite yet. Preparation and so forth. You, can, you, know, you guys are probably pretty familiar with this. Um, action is when they actually start getting involved and start practicing these tools. Um, maintenance is, is when we're, you know, what can we do to help keep you from relapsing? This is going to require some fine tuning and, you know, you coming to therapy, whatever kind of setting it is, or counseling, um, to help you with those urges. And then relapse, if they fall back into patterns of old behavior. Um, I tend to um, use MI and CBT, and you know, with that, we don't say, you know, you have to start all over. It's more, okay, you had a relapse, what can we do to get you back on track? You know, so it's more about maintenance and helping the client figure out what they need to do and not viewing relapse as a complete failure, but looking at it as a learning experience. And that is all very strength-based, which, you know, is MI. So if you guys will take a look at your hierarchy of values worksheet, let's look at that one first. Uh, I'll pull it up um, on my side as well so you can all look at it. Okay, so this is something I really like these tools because they're not super difficult to use, they're handy. Um, 
some of my clients will hold on to these, fold them up, keep them in their purse or wallet, just to kind of look at, especially when they're getting started. So using your own examples, and then if anybody would be willing to share, I would love that. But you can start with, and this is the this is what I would suggest using as the first tool to help a client kind of get in that mindset. So let's, what do I value most? My top five values, what are they? So, you know, you don't have to do all five, but you know, list a few. And it gives you some examples. And then when you write those down, it has kind of a really cool, um, more like I would call it maybe kind of a script. Um, is anybody comfortable with sharing their some of their top values? Jesus, faithfulness, family, dependability, and personal well-being. You mind repeating those? Jesus, faithfulness, family, dependability, and personal well-being. Okay, good. Anybody else? You know, I love when clients get there and they're just like, 
just realized, you know, I just had this aha moment of why I need to stop this behavior. Um, and this is a guided exercise, and it's really good because it takes the focus off of you, and you can have them reading it. Um, and so whenever they struggle with discrepancy about using or the substance, you know, have them ask themselves these questions. And I'll tell clients, like, use this, like, pull it out when you're struggling and read over it. You know, remember what your values are. What do I want for my future? Um, what am I currently doing to achieve that? How do I feel about what I'm currently doing? Um, and they give you some different um, answers that will be helpful. And so overall, you can see what can I do differently to achieve the future I want? How would changing what I do or getting what I want make me feel? Um, and then it just kind of, it asks you to look at the discrepancies between the values that you initially listed. And um, another little helpful tip, and I mean, you don't have to do this, but it might be, I really encourage you to, um, you know, when I was in social work school, one of the best things that I got out of it was all the self-reflection and, you know, exercises where you were kind of put in the client's shoes, and it just really helps with em empathy, in my opinion, and kind of understanding client behaviors better. Because um, we all have, we all have things that don't do not necessarily align with our values. So, you know, like my family is number one for, you know, very important for, to me. Um, sometimes I choose work obligations and that may not be healthy. Um, so it's very important, you know, that we are in line with those. So the second one we're gonna look at that you guys should have is, here, the change plan worksheet. So this is where we start doing some work on identifying specific, more making plans and um, coping skills much more concrete. So these are, you know, changes I want to make. How, and then it has a rating scale. How important is it to me to make these changes? Um, confidence level, and I, this really could be a working document, right? This may change because they may reach some goals and, uh, you know, their confidence level may change over time. Important reasons to make these changes. Um, how can others help me and what kind of help is that? Um, and you notice, you want people, I always say, you know, Pick your person, your go-to person, but make sure that they hold you accountable, that they're accountable people, not in, you know, enabling. Um, I will know when my plan is working when I stay sober, I can sleep, I'm eating better. Um, some things that could interfere with my plan are you know, um, isolating myself, not going to group meetings, having a drink, seeing a drinking friend and being pressured to go for drinks. Um, these are just really important 
to map these out because when someone first comes in, they're kind of all over the place. And this really helps them hone in and kind of map it out. And it gives them something tangible that they can lead with and reflect on for their next session or meeting. Um, any comments on, on that? Does anybody feel like some of these, um, these would be helpful for them? No? Yes? <laughs> just eating a cookie, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was gonna say yes, I mean like, a worksheet like this I could use at work. I mean, absolutely. You know, just with, with any type of goal setting. So uh, I think that a lot of people that are gonna come into uh, a recovery type setting do not necessarily know how to set goals. So I think this is a good foundation. Yes, they don't know how to set goals and also they sometimes don't even realize what the barriers are and then, you know, what the strengths are that they have. And so this just helps them provide some clarity with that. And um, as you said, they're easy to use, which is why I like sharing them. Just something you can take into practice anywhere. All right, so empathy is an important part of MI. Um, it's, it really is important with any kind of, uh, therapeutic or counseling or that intervention. So, you know, we want to try to be where they are. Can we relate with them? Can we feel or at least understand their feelings and where they're coming from? Um, good questions to help with this is just to kind of think, man, if I were in a situation, what might I be thinking? Um, how would I feel? Um, how would I handle when the lids to change? We've all been there, you know, but just think this is kind of amped up, you know, when good wants to change. And, and we're dealing with people whose, you know, neurotransmitters provide them joy and, um, you know, calmness and help them with with coping with anxiety, all these have been affected by the substance that they're using, not to mention that that front part of the brain that's so highly affected with their um, ability to rationalize, um, um, decrease um, impulsive uh, choices and behaviors, and so, you know, you're dealing with all of that. So it's very important to think about that when we are when we need to be patient with people as, as they struggle with that ambivalence. Um, how would I want others to respond to me if I were in this situation? That's a just really great question to ask yourself. You know, if you went in somewhere, which, how would you want to be treated? And empathetic listening is essential to minimizing resistance. And so, you know, just some very easy and empathetic responses is, you know, that sounds really rough. Um, that sounds tough. I'm sorry you're going through that. Um, so just like reflection of, um, you know, what they're saying, or it sounds like you've been through a lot. So just very reflective, but not judgmental. 
Okay, so I love acronyms um, when I'm learning things. I think it's just really helpful um, just to help memorize some of the things. So, you know, this is, these are some ways to elicit change talk and the acronym here is DARN. Um, so, you know, why do you want to change your alcohol use? What abilities do you have to help change your whatever use? What are reasons to stop use? And what are some reasons you need to change your alcohol use? All of these, those four questions right there will really, really help to target that ambivalence. Um, and they're open-ended questions, if you'll notice. Um, and you can word them differently, just make sure that they're non-judgmental and that you're including those components. Um, also, how has this been a problem for you? What have others expressed as a concern about your substance use? Um, that collateral information can be so important because your client may see, you know, that have a very one-sided view or just report that they think they're fine. It's everybody else that thinks there's a problem, but it's still important to explore that. Um, you seem to be feeling stuck. What would have to change to get you, you know, to the next step? Um, that's a really great question to um, uh, seek out, you know, um, what their intrinsic motivations are. Um, what gives you hope about changing your views? We really need to, act, you know, that's a great way to end a session. You know, what gives you hope? Help them leave your session or group on a positive note with some hope, like I can do this. Um, so questions to challenge those negative thoughts and beliefs. A lot of people, as I said, are already struggling, um, whether it be anxiety, trauma, um, and, and you know, these, you know, abuse they may have experienced. So they've already kind of been through the ringer and told, or through actions of others, reinforce that I'm not worthy or you know, no one cares about me. I'm just, you know, I've just been used or abused or um, I've never found the right, you know, treatment that helps with my symptoms. So, you know, I have to, I have to deal with them somehow. Um, so we want to work on asking what's the evidence for that, that automatic thought. I hear a lot of times like, I just don't, you know, people don't really like me. I don't like going out because, you know, I feel like I'm awkward, or, you know, people people just can't relate to me. And when you start asking evidence for that, yeah, they may come up with some things, but, you know, they're also going, if, if, if you continue to assist them, they're going to also recognize and it's not that all or nothing. There are, you know, there's that gray area, right? And everybody kind of lives in the gray area. Things aren't always going to be perfect, and so we go back and forth. Um, is there an alternative explanation? It's another good question to ask, especially, you know, if they come to you with, you know, I walked into work today and my boss barely talked to me and they were mean mugging me or whatever it may be. 
Um, so what, what's an alternative explanation? You know, could they have had a bad day and it had nothing to do with you? Um, what is the worst possible outcome? I kind of shot away from that one, um, especially people who have anxiety disorder because they will catastrophize and come up with the worst possible outcome. So once again, I've started to kind of shift to use what is the most reasonable outcome, you know, what are most likely to occur outcome. Um, if I'm honest with myself, what is the most reasonable outcome? And this is, you know, kind of the magic question. Um, you know, if we ask, people like who is someone you really care about and they identify that person what if they were dealing with this and had this thought what what would you tell them and they'll come up with the most amazing uplifting statements and then it's like okay so you know can we translate this to maybe you deserve to to uh, use some self-kindness, you know? And a lot of them are shocked, like, why would I be kind to myself? I don't even deserve that. Um, and so we have to shift them out of that. So ORS is another really good acronym. Um, and depending on which um, study you're looking at or, or which research, it can mean a lot of things, but they're all, I mean, I can think they're all good. So we want to use open-ended questions, optimism, and be open-minded. A, we want to use positive affirmations, active listening. Um, what, what does that mean when I say active listening? Listening to understand, not to respond. Yeah, very good. Any other points? Stephanie, it's it's good to simply ask a question and, and say, you know what, I really don't understand what you're trying to say. Could you give me a little more detail? Um, yes, because that lets the client know you're, you're at least listening to them and you're yep. interested. Yeah. Um, also, we need to be mindful of our nonverbal cues, you know, like our arms crossed as we're talking to our client, are we, are we maintaining eye contact, are we leaning in a little bit, um, you know, all of those things are very important with active listening um, and that reflection. So what I'm hearing you saying, or what it sounds like you're saying is you're struggling with a, B, or C, or you seem like you're a little down, um, and then you kind of see what they say. But, but we always want to be throwing the ball back to them um, and achievement, you know, focus on their achievements. Um, so our reflective listening, as I mentioned, resilience building. These, these folks are some of the most resilient people. I mean, whether they use, you know, healthy coping skills or not, they have done a fairly decent job of getting their needs met. But how can we turn those into healthier coping skills that will work for you and through your wellness and your health? Um, 
and then reframing, you know, when they have that stinking thinking or they've got those negative thoughts, we want to validate them and let them know, you know, um, I'm really sorry to hear that you're feeling that way. That sounds really tough. Is there another way we could look at this? Like if we were to do a reframe? Um, so that that's really like where you need to really be recognizing the strengths. Um, and then the S, summary statements, support and self-empowerment. The focus needs to be on empowering that client to let them know that they don't have to depend on other people. They have what they need, you know, within them to seek out treatment, comply with treatment, reach their goals, whatever that looks like. It's gonna look different for everybody. So rolling with, with resistance is a normal part of change. You know, I know, um, you know, some of the therapists that I worked with, their approach was very confrontational. Um, it creates power struggles, um, or they try to assert strong control. Not to say that we don't need to be, you know, managing in control of, you know, the therapeutic setting where we might have to redirect and get back on, on track. Um, but you don't need to be arguing and you do not need to do a lot of heavy confrontation. That, I mean, good luck with your client, first of all, coming back and also leaving their feeling any kind of hope. Um, you know, their interventions used to be very popular and you guys have probably heard of the show. Interventions are not evidence-based and tend to not really lead to any long-term um, treatment. I know one that I was a part of, I was actually an intern observing, and you know, they had great group experience, family showed up, friends showed up, wife gave these ultimatums for this gentleman, and by the time it was all done, he said, okay, are you guys finished? Because I'm gonna go to the bar after hearing what a piece of junk I am. Um, and so all these ultimatums, no one followed through with them. And so all that did was create another another way of enabling. Um, and like I said, shame and guilt, just, it just tends to not work. Um, when you tell someone what to do, it is likely deemed as confrontational and fosters resistance. Encourage them to come up with solutions to their situations as they define them, inviting the examination of new perspectives without badgering, lecturing, or imposing new ways of thinking. I love the terms cultural humility. Um, that can take on a lot of meanings. That could be, you know, that these were these are the norms of the family that I grew up in. These are the norms of my neighborhood or the group of people I hang out with. Um, you know, that can look like so many different things and we need to be mindful that we are respectful of that um, and that we understand that uh, and try to help from their own resources and help them um, engage those. 
because you know we can have things all day long that we can throw at them, but the more we can incorporate things that already exist within their culture or their world is important. And also, uh, as someone said, just sometimes asking, you know, is is there a part um, that I'm missing or their cultural aspects that you want me to know about. I always ask that on the intake um, because you never know. You want to respect people's beliefs. Um, it's not our place to give advice, but to help intrinsic motivation take place. Okay, so let's practice. I have a little, a very brief case study here. Leslie is new to your group. She chronically binge drinks alcohol, but has not used alcohol in four days. She is unsure if she wants to commit to long-term sobriety. So she's in that pre-contemplation, the contemplation stage, kind of going back and forth here. With a, a partner in, in your uh, group or independently, practice uh, some resistance and how some statements using MI uh, to elicit change and remember open-ended questions help us to not give advice and assist to elicit increased feedback from the client about what they want to change and to do this um, we're going to use that cost-benefit analysis and, and I'm going to kind of talk about other ways that that can be used with clients as well. But, um, you know, in doing this, when you're filling it out with a partner on your own, think about how this could help um, Leslie in her situation. How can it be applied to those who relapse when they end up in situations where relapse is possible? And keep in mind that we have to acknowledge that the client does, does get something from using as I said before. So, it's the cost-benefit analysis. And it's, it explains things so well, there's examples um, that you can use, you know, costs, risks, and advantages. And then down here, So, you know, just kind of come up with some things that Leslie might miss or that you can assist and guide with her listing. And you'll notice the first one, benefits of using or dealing. And then the second one is not using or dealing.
Is anybody ready to share some examples? You mean, you mean what's already included on the sheet? Yeah. Did, we, did anyone come up with any new ones that can be used for the case of Leslie? Stephanie, could you put her slide back up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the handout, this one? No, the, uh, the case study of Leslie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. situation that may come into your office or come to your group what are some what are some uh, positives that she, that she may identify with her binge drinking Stephanie I would right off the bat I would celebrate that she's four days sober that's one of the first things I would go for But something brought her to the group or, or to a session, right? With four days of sobriety. And so helping her to use that um, cost-benefit analysis sheet, usually there's maybe one or two things that they might identify as benefits of continuing use but the benefits of not continuing to use gets much fuller. And so I like to use this uh, cost-benefit analysis form worksheet, uh, especially if people come to group or session. And um, for instance, I have a, um, or I have a client who is in recovery from gambling addiction, very severe gambling addiction and his friends want him to go out to Las Vegas with them. And he wants to go to Las Vegas. You know, he hasn't traveled since we've been in the pandemic. And so I was like, well, let's take out that cost benefit analysis and take a look, you know, um, you know, benefits of, of going versus not going. Um, you know, and if they do decide to go, 
help them write out that plan of, you know, if we go back a couple worksheets, okay, remember, this is your plan that you need to try to follow if you do choose to go on the trip. And that's, and that would be a hard one not to give advice on, right? Because my first instinct was, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, why are you going to put yourself around casinos and with friends that that's their sole purpose for going? Um, but if I were to say that, my client would just shut down. Um, so helping them work to get there themselves and, and make up their minds themselves, you know, it's very powerful to keep people feeling like they're in control of their own lives versus, you know, somebody's telling you what to do, especially when, when one is struggling with addiction. So, I've, you know, I encourage you to use that cost-benefit analysis sheet for those things. Um, it's also really good, you know, if, if someone does have a relapse, to just get out of the cognitive distortions and that guilt and shame and move past it to, Here's what we can do. These are tangible things that you can do um, to help you through that. Okay, and um, just something to think about. I really like this quote. Um, if you treat an individual as he is, he will remain how he is. But if you treat him as if he were what he ought to be and could be, he will become what he ought to be and could be. And that to me just speaks volumes in regards to how we approach a, a difficult situation with someone and the way we choose to support them is very powerful. You know, the majority of folks that come to us probably haven't been treated very well. Mm -hmm. And some of that, yeah, those are consequences of their behaviors. However, we need to be, you know, um, disconnected from that. We need to be kind of that, um, we're that positive person. We're that supportive person. You have enough people telling you what to do and giving you advice and giving you ultimatums. We're here to work on you and what you want. So it's all really, it really about how we treat a person when they come to us. Um, and that is the end of this presentation. I would like to kind of, you know, give everybody a chance if they have any questions or, you know, any, any other things that might be beneficial. Um, that I could, you know, get to Chris to disseminate to everyone. Um, I have a question right now about your client with gambling. Um, as someone who's, who's working with him, would you um, feel that it's good to ask a question like, um, what are going to be ways that you can help control your gambling while you're there? Like, do you have a plan for that? Do you think that that would be um, something that would cause more resistance or would that be a good thing? I would, I would that, that's why I really like the uh, scripts and the worksheets. So, 
you know, if you looked at that um, um, hierarchy of values worksheet or the, um, I don't know what it's called, the, uh, this would be a good one to review. Did it pull up the, the change plan worksheet? I would, I would have them, you know, work on that. Like, let's revisit your values and where you were. Let's look at that. Um, you've come this far and then have them rate their confidence level. Have them really consider that. Like, what is your confidence level that you wouldn't relapse if you were in a casino surrounded by friends who were gambling? Um, we want to help them explore. And so your question, I would just tweak them and make them a little more open-ended and uh, just be mindful that they don't sound judgmental. Loaded questions, that's what you want to avoid. That's what I was trying to get at. Um, you know, we have an intent and purpose for why we're asking this and the way we're phrasing it makes that obvious. So you just you want to keep it simple, you know. And that cost-benefit analysis sheet is really good for that kind of stuff. You know, what are the costs of me going? What what are the benefits? And then what are the, the benefits of me not going? And if they insist on going, well, we have this here, this worksheet where they have a plan. Um, they have, you know, people they can contact, tell them to take it with them. Some people really use them. Other questions? How often are you having these meetings with the, uh, your clients? So is this like a once a week meeting that you have an hour? Cause like this half of the room actually is in recovery programs where we're with them all day, every day doing life with them basically for a nine to 12 month period in a recovery program. So our conversations are evolving and going and growing throughout the entire time. So are, is this, is, is, is kind of what you're asking. I, I love, there was a lot of it, a lot of it that was really informative. I was trying to see how I would turn that into what I do day in, day out, day in, day out, of, you know, with our clients as we are with them all the time. Right. Um, so, you know, with, if, if I have a group environment, I teach those skills and really a facilitator of a group should say very little. They should maybe direct or what would other, you know, what do people in the group have to say? Or is, you know, does anyone have another way of looking at that um, and really using that, that um, peer support system? And then, you know, you're creating a supportive community and everybody is engaged with using these skills, if that makes sense. And it is a lot of redirecting, a lot of like, you know, um, when I was with uh, the drug court, you know, um, all the time, it was like, okay, new challenge. What can we do with this? Um, and so, yeah, it would be, are you able to meet with people one-on-one -on -one when you're working? 
throughout the day with clients or is it always a group setting? No, actually a lot of the meetings are one-on-one uh, throughout the day. They're, they're coming in and kind of like a revolving door coming in. There are group sessions based around for like teaching, but primarily it is one-on-one -on -one meetings. It's just that you're meeting with that same client pretty regularly throughout a month's, you know, day in, day out because you're with them, they're there in that program for a lengthy amount of time. So, yeah, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things we talked about were more when a client first comes to you, but all of these things, you know, you're always probably going to be addressing cognitive distortions when a client comes in. And, you know, the research on that is, those become, those, that is how someone has become wired based on their experiences and how they feel the world has treated them. And the research shows once, like it takes about a thousand counteractive, rational, positive reframes to make that your more automatic thought than the initial negative. And it sounds like a lot of work, because that's a, that's a big number, but when you think about how many thoughts go through your mind, minute to minute, second, you know, within seconds, um, if you're purposefully doing it, you can train your brain to have new, um, very uh, neuroplasticity. So we can create healthier patterns um, using some of those. Um, hey, and Stephanie. It would be good to do it as much as possible when you're seeing these clients to help them redirect and come up with come up with some positive reframes themselves. Yeah. Stephanie, um, have you had any success with harm reduction plans? Such as, yeah. you know, if I'm doing five glasses of wine a night, instead of you saying Crisco cold turkey, you say, how about, let's just go to four. And let's just do that for a few months. And then let's go to three. Well, I don't say that, but I say, well, you know, like if they tell me I'm not ready to quit completely, I say, well, are you willing to negotiate? Can we <laughs> look at maybe trying something different? And then I kind of see what they're willing to do. Um, but absolutely, I have had, like I could just, off the top of my head, I, I can think of several clients. It took about a year of really intensive therapy for them to get there. Um, and, you know, the harm reduction, I will say it, it, as far as like cutting back on drinking, a lot of people aren't successful with that, um, but they try. And then that kind of helps them to realize on their own I can't even cut back, you know, I, I can't do this. I've got to try something different. Um, so helping them shift to that and allowing them to be that person in power to make that decision, um, I've had very good success with that. Good. But, um, yes, very much harm reduction. If, if that's the only thing I can have my client, you know, be willing to try, well, that's what we're going to go with. Yeah. Thank you for this presentation. I wonder if you'd be willing to share the PowerPoint presentation with us? Yeah, 
can I, if I email it to Chris? Yeah, I can get it out. Um, can you get that to everybody? Yes. Yes. Okay. One last thing. With some of the clients that you serve, what do they report as uh, some of the benefits of motivational interviewing? What are they saying they're getting out of Uh, this approach? All the time. Just thank you for not judging me. Um, I feel better. Uh, When I came in here, I thought it was going to be a lot different. Um, you know, just, just that type of thing. Um, and I always ask, you know, I'm like, tell me how you feel about this session. And then that gives me some feedback of, you know, if they found it beneficial as well as what they got out of it. Um, and most of the time they do feel helpful. You know, they're like, I'm still, you know, not completely sold on it. There's still maybe some ambivalence, but they would be there feeling hopeful and then come back. I have almost a non-existent finger rate, um, or you know, did did not keep appointment rate. And so, you know, that's really important to me that they keep coming to do the work. I have a question. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I'm also with the Union Rescue Mission and one of the one of the situations that we have on a regular basis, it's pretty hard, is a client that's been there for a while, um, since it's a nine to twelve month program, and out of the blue they want to leave and talking them into staying and realizing the benefits of staying is something that we have often struggled with when they almost seem to have their minds made up. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, and and that's tricky amongst programs because some programs, once you leave, you're done. Others are, okay, relapse, how can, we, how can we use this as a learning experience? You came back, let's get you back on track. But that is also why I made sure to share that cost-benefit analysis, because when you have a client that is stuck, you know, in making a good decision, um, you know, if they will just, Let's just sit down and like talk about this and, and work through it. Um, because my guess would be, as we you know talked about in the presentation, is that they are dealing with unhealthy thoughts in regards to urges. Um, so if we go back and look at that, I make sure I always stop. So here we go. Um, first, explore the reason of why they want to leave. You know, um, what are, you know, and I would just say, what are some thoughts that are kind of fueling this, and see if they're having urges, and then 
talk about, you know, try to get them to say what they feel about these urges and then help them redirect to a more reasonable, realistic um, point of view. And I don't know which programs use mindfulness, but I like mindfulness. It can be so easy. And it's just basically teaching a client to coexist with unpleasant thoughts and feelings and know, hey, there's a fear. I'm, I can predict in this healthy behavior, whether it be listening to music, a relaxation, like a guided relaxation method, but learning how to coexist with the unpleasant emotions and thoughts that are going through, just going to happen, we all have them and knowing and reminding them you know, this, these urges are going to pass. But what you do, you know, could be more serious. Um, and just really trying to help them process that decision. But I know that's so difficult, you know. You, you put so much into working with the client, and they put so much in to get so far, and they just want to up and quit. That, that's a tough one. Um, but remember, if you can help them get to the point that they want, they want this for themselves, um, it's just going to be a lot more, um, you're going to have better results, you're more likely to have better results, and, you know, so are they. That's a good question, thank you. Thank you. Um, and so you want to really focus on 
Okay, so it sounds like, and you can be reflective listening and kind of kind of um, redirect them to the underlying feelings of I'm just sick of this, I'm over this, um, and where they might say, you know, I want to use, I want to go out and use. Okay, I'm, you know, that sounds really difficult. Um, is there, are, is there something that um, has caused you stress? Um, what has led, you know, to the urges? Um, get, get why they feel they need to leave. Because then you have something to work with. And so then, you know, if they make these, these statements that are irrational, right? Where they're talking about, like, you know, I've got this urge and I've got to use or, you know, I'm, I'm just going to lose it. I'm not, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, um, you can look at that, you know, cost-benefit analysis. Okay, so if you give in, you're going to, you'll go get high. That will last a little bit, but then what happens after that? And um, I would also ask them, you know, what are some of the benefits that you've gotten from being in this program and having sobriety. Really just ask their directed questions, but they're open-ended to get the client to start thinking for themselves. Because most of the time when they get to that point, they're not thinking rationally. All they see is, I'm gonna go get high. I wanna get high, that's all I see. That's all I wanna do. And so we've gotta get them into a calmer place in a more rational thinking place. Okay. No, did that answer the question? It didn't, let me know. I'm... Something I would encourage um, maybe to build on this is you know, I don't know how familiar everyone is with CBT, but you know, when you, the gold standard and most evidence-based approach to substance abuse is to start off with motivational interviewing, get them to that action point, and then start looking and utilizing some more CBT to where you're looking at more into the cognitive distortion, where do they come from, how are they reinforced over time? Why are these your automatic thoughts? And how can we shift, you know, to where you're thinking more rationally? And I'll actually share one of my, uh, is anyone familiar with Kia Melody and her model? She has some fabulous, um, charts that you can easily use and this one is my favorite she and Kia Melody she uh, works for uh, the Meadows Center which is out west but a lot of it, it focuses on how you know a lot of our, our clients don't come from healthy family backgrounds or supportive family backgrounds and so um, these negative and distorted thoughts come from 
you know, a lot of how we were wired when we were brought up, you know, that whole nature versus nurture. Of course, some people are born with, you know, predispositions with alcohol. We know there's a gene and the male offspring of someone who struggled with alcoholism, they're four times higher or four times more likely to carry that gene and that predisposition. And so I think it's, it's always important to help clients understand where the unhealthy behaviors come from um, so that they're not doing so much self-blame and we can decrease some of that shame. And this is one of her, I mean, you can Google this and, and print it off or just pull it up and work with the client on this. Um, so she calls them dysfunctional survival traits. Um, and then it becomes poor symptoms of codependence. And this is where we might see people trying to self-medicate. And so, you know, we'll go over the natural characteristics of a child. Well, a child needs to feel valued. Did you feel valued during your childhood? A lot of my clients say no for whatever reasons. And then we, we look at, okay, so the, you learned the dysfunctional survival trait to, you know, feel less than. That's where that poor self-esteem comes from. Or a, self, a defense mechanism, better than. I'm just going to be overly critical of others and pop myself up and, and so forth. But in adults, that codependency is going to come from poor, you know, not appropriate levels of self-esteem. And you can go through each one. You need to be able to be vulnerable. A child shouldn't have to worry about their safety because we're worrying about that for them as parents, right, or caregivers. They need to be imperfect. They need to be allowed to make mistakes and then learn from them. Um, dependent for their needs and wants to be able to be mature, immature sometimes. And it's okay to laugh at, you know, goofy things that we might not think are as funny in adulthood. And so you can easily just follow this chart. And I am always amazed at the feedback and depth that I get from clients. And it just really helps me better understand them. And most of them have really good aha moments when I go over this with them. They're like, that explains so much. And having insight is a huge part of being able to change those behaviors. Like, oh, that's where that, that makes sense that that's where that comes from, okay. Um, well, this is something that I don't wanna continue. How can I work to change it? So I don't, you know, I've shared this with in, in my supervision groups and, and you know, the, the counselors in there love this. Um, especially, it's really good to use for like, a, you know, in the first few sessions, um, because increasing insight is, is very powerful. Did anybody find this somewhat helpful? Very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I even very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, this just, I, and you really, you can, it's meant for people who are struggling with addiction, but you can use this for really just about anything. Um, and it just kind of explains, you know, where did this bad and rebellious behavior come from? 
Um, or we have people who struggle with addiction that are those over-functioners and you know, they're functioning uh, but still struggling with addiction. So it's just, it, you, can, you can really get into some very um, great topics with your clients on this and, and help them have good insight. And you'll learn a lot about them too and kind of what makes them tick. And then you can say when you're in those sessions when they want to leave and they're feeling worthless or they're, they're feeling hope, hopeless, we can say, you remember when we talked about kind of where that comes from and how that's become a dysfunctional survival skill for you? Um, and you wanted, you know, you had said you wanted to work on that. This is, this is a really good opportunity to work on that. I'm making everything sound very positive, if you notice. Know <laughs> What was the, who is the name of the, what is the name of the person who wrote that chart? Pia Melody, P-I-A Melody with two L's. Um, and she has some other great stuff out there. Um, she also has several workbooks that you could use, you know, especially she's really great stuff on independency. If, if you have clients who might be in toxic relationships that involve substance abuse. Any other questions or comments? I do want to invite everyone, and I can send um, Chris the uh, link. Um, I'm doing, UCA is offering uh, several free trainings through Mid-South, and they're all virtual. You can just sign on through your phone, you know, through your computer. Um, this Friday is a post, it, it's on pregnancy, addiction, and postpartum depression. And it's going to look at how we treat mothers who are struggling with addiction and need help, because we're a very punitive state. Um, one of, we're one of the few punitive states um, and we're, I'm just going to kind of look at states that put these women into treatment and how much better the outcomes are for them and their baby. Um, in part two, we'll talk more about treatment and re resources that are in our state. Um, but that will, that will be um, Friday at 1.30. And we have some other ones on gambling, I believe ethics and different topics. So, um, all of you are welcome to attend that. You can get CEUs for it. It's the Mid-South. Um, but that's something that's really important to us, uh, the Addiction Studies Program, to be offering at the community. Any other questions or comments? I hope everybody found this somewhat helpful. Um, as I told Chris, I was, you know, just planning to kind of start off on the basics and um, you guys just let me know if you feel like an extension or a part two to this would be helpful. Um, 
but I really hope you find the handouts that I provided. I love things that I can readily use, you know, at the office or in the in the residential center clinic. So um, I am happy to share all of that, and I'll be sure to uh, send the presentation to Chris as well. Do we have permission to use those forms as they are? Because on the bottom, it mentioned something about the SMART program. So, yeah, so SMART recovery is, um, I mean, they, they like for it to be utilized in their SMART recovery groups. Um, I'm actually, uh, that, that is my training, is SMART recovery, and, and at UCA we're going to start offering a SMART recovery. Did somebody say something? Oh, okay. Um, and so, in the training, you know, they said they prefer it to be used in their group, but that it can readily be used in a clinic setting. Ethical forms provided. Similar forms can be found on com. Yeah, you can you can find those forms um, online for free. They're not you know they're not locked down. And if you're uncomfortable using them, I mean, they're repeat. You can, they're not fancy, you can easily make your own, you know, or simplify if, if you like. Stephanie, thank you. Thank you, and you know I've, I've shared my email. And if there's ever something that comes up, please feel free to email me. And um, we are we are actually adding more to our um, our website. We're gonna have a separate website with resources um, for anyone who works with teens. We have a. Um, we have boxes and boxes of um, graphic novels that we created that are about opioid prevention and education, and we're just giving them away. So if you work with teens and you think that that would be helpful and, and just kind of something fun to hand out, um, feel free to reach out to me and we'll figure out how to, how to get them to you. I think we have like 15,000 copies that just came in, so we definitely want to put them to use. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Good night, everybody. I really appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Grab something on the way out. We enjoyed it. Uh, would you like to do another one? Kind of a part two of this? Yeah. You can go online and get the Motivational Enhancement Therapy Manual. It's kind of a scientific basis for what you just saw. MI comes out of MET, if that makes sense. And uh, 
this is good stuff. Good stuff. So thank you all so much. Yep. Yep. I mean, I probably need
So, you know, Fidel, they don't make you wear a mask anymore. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The employees are still wearing them. Okay. Well, then I'll go, I'll go there. Then.
Wednesday.